Good evening. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It really does encourage us that you're here. Everybody, if you will, take your Bible and open to Revelation, the second and the third chapter. We'll be looking, uh, beginning at Revelation, the second chapter, in just a few moments as we continue a series we started a few Sunday nights ago, uh, looking at the promises that are made to those who overcome out of the book of Revelation as he speaks to the seven churches of Asia. As we do that, or before we do that, let me mention a quick reminder. Friends Day, next Sunday, make your plans now to be thinking about if you haven't already contacted friends or if you had to follow up this week, make your plans to meet up with them and enjoy the time together. Morning services and Bible classes scheduled as always. And then in the afternoon, Charlie Daniels Park, beginning two o'clock activities, three o'clock the hot dog meal and four o'clock will be worship service together. There will be a six o'clock service here at the building if you'd prefer to do that. Be inviting friends no matter where you plan on attending and let's do our best to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The following Sunday, Steve Diggs will be speaking about stewardship and that evening and Monday evening, you'll have the opportunity free of charge to participate in a no debt, no sweat seminar uh, that will be a blessing as we think about stewardship. And so in inviting, while you invite your friends, if that's something that they're interested in, invite them back the next Sunday so that they'll have the opportunity to participate in that. Another thing that we want to let you know about, and I think this was mentioned a year ago, uh, but it was in its initial stages and now it has come to fruition. And so we're excited about it. Number one, we want to tell you about it. But number two, we want to tell you about it because you're probably going to start having some of your relatives or some of your friends that go to other congregations. They may start mentioning to you, oh, I've heard about what you guys are doing at Mount Juliet and we're excited about it. And we don't want you saying, we don't know what you're talking about that you're doing at Mount Juliet. So uh, here's what we doing. Philip and I, along with three other guys, have been working for over a year on these two books that are designed to be the a study theme for 2017 if churches choose to participate in this. Now, let me go ahead and say right out of the gate, there are 75 authors that participated in this. And the way that we were uh, able to compensate them was that Miss Ann Craddock left a portion of her estate to the Mount Juliet congregation. And the elders decided that this was a good investment in the kingdom and also something that Miss Ann would love to do, and that is spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that is one of the reasons why we can make these available at cost pretty much. And so uh, the first is a study guide, and it is not a sermon outline, and we did that very intentionally. We do not want this to be a crutch to encourage preachers or Bible class teachers or whoever uses it. We don't want them studying less. We want to enrich their study to study deeper. And so there is a lesson per, there is a resource per week. There are 53 Sundays next year. We decided to take what we believed were 53 important words, hence the topic, one word, 53 important words in scripture that we don't need to lose the meaning of them and we need to understand how God uses these words. 
And so a resource has been written for if, if a church decides to do this based on the entire congregation, the preacher would use this and helping him then go back and, and study and develop his own lessons. And there's Greek and Hebrew word studies in every lesson. Uh, there's at least five different passages, Old and New Testament, where the word is used so that the teacher or the preacher can study how it's used throughout scripture. And then there's helpful tips that are suggested in addition to that. And then, now here's where it gets really neat. And, and we know as a church family, the times that we have grown the most is when we all study something together and everybody is bought into it and everybody is on board. So let's just say that, that one week, the word that we study together is atonement. Then the church family, everybody has their own devotional book. And that week, the word is atonement. There will be a lesson every day, Monday through Friday, about atonement. There'll be a daily Bible reading that goes with that. And then there will be a one-page devotional that, that goes with that. And then just a close that says, I will, and a suggestion of what you could do to apply that to your life that particular day. Uh, because uh, the, of Miss Ann's gift and because no one is, is making any profit off this, uh, this book is, is available to congregations for $3 a piece. And so it's very, very cost effective to make it available to all the congregation. Uh, it went live just a few days ago online and uh, because of a lot of individual purchases where uh, preachers are buying a copy of each one of these so they can look at it and say, hey, do we want to do this? And then of course they'll talk to their eldership, but already some pretty big orders are coming in. Just right before I walked in, I uh, got a text that another church just ordered 125 just a few minutes ago. We are right at the 4,000 mark that we have already sold of uh, the, the uh, devotional books, which in the brotherhood, when you sell four or 5,000 of something, that's pretty amazing as far as books. And, and we are just getting started. And so I, please be prayerful that it accomplishes everything God wants it to accomplish. And, um, and if somebody asks you about it, you can say, yes, we're excited about that. We're praying about that. And we hope it does good. We do not want this. And, and we're not advertising in this way, but I'm just talking to us right here. We do not want this to become a thing of, hey, look what Mount Juliet Church Christ is offering. That's not where the emphasis is as we're advertising it. And that's not where the emphasis is going to be. This is hey, look what is available for us to use in the kingdom and let's study more and let's grow closer to the Lord. And can I throw this out just as a little tidbit? We can assure you that if you will remember the Mount Juliet Church of Christ in your will, that we can put whatever you do to very, very good work to reach the world. Listen, it's, it's unlimited of the things we could offer if the budget was unlimited. And, and um, I just don't want you thinking when you think about your will or you think about large and generous gifts, I don't want you thinking, well, I need to think of somewhere that could really use it. We can use it to reach the kingdom if you can just generously give it. And we're thankful for Miss Ann Craddock and the generous gift uh, that, that was made available through her gift. And uh, I, I can just imagine how she would smile uh, to know that, that this gift is being used in this way. If there were a bus parked outside the door here 
And you know how oftentimes buses have the destination written on the front of the bus. If the bus's destination said heaven and it was leaving in about 30 minutes, would you go get on it? And if not, why not? I hope you'll think about that tonight and I hope you'll think about it this week. But if you did go ahead and get on it, do you know what's waiting for you? We know that the book of Revelation, it tells us that it's written with a lot of signs and symbols, but yet when we look in the first, second, and third chapter, it is written in such a way that it seems that the signs and symbols are a lot less frequent than when we go deeper into the book. And we see these seven churches that in most of our Bibles, if you have a, a red letter edition, most of it's in red because it's words that Jesus was saying. And I, I don't know if I need to remind you, but in a sense, we're kind of dabbling with two different th series throughout Revelation 2nd and 3rd chapter at the same time. And I don't really know if we can ever finish both of them before the year is out. But the one that we're on tonight is the idea of let's look at the end of each of these letters where he urges them to overcome. And if they overcome, he offers a promise to them. Now, another series that we started a few Sunday mornings ago was the idea that let's just take a quick look at each of the seven churches of Asia and see what we can learn about us and what we ought to be. And hopefully we'll be able to come back to that one and start with a third church before too awful long. But tonight I want you to think about this. What fuels us to finish? What fuels us to be an overcomer? It's interesting with all seven of these churches, when he held out something to say, this is reason. This is reason for you to overcome. It was never something on this earth. Listen, the greatest motivation to be a Christian is not something that's here. And I'm not saying that there's nothing good on earth. And I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't give us any blessings on earth. But the greatest blessings and the greatest motivation for you and I to be faithful, for you and I to finish this race is not on this earth. The greatest blessings are out in front of us. That's a very great reason to go get on the bus. The best is yet to come. It's beyond our imagination. Nobody will go there and experience heaven and then in just a few minutes time say, I wish I was back on earth right now. It just won't happen. It's such an awesome place. And so what is it that he offers us and what is it that he promises? You know, the first letter in the second chapter is to the church of Ephesus and he offered them to be able to eat again of the tree of life. We found the tree of life in the garden in the very beginning of the Bible and then we don't really see much detail about it again until it's in God's garden up in heaven at the book of Revelation. And then we saw that the next church was Smyrna in verse 8. And we know that what was offered to them is that they could have a crown of life. They could have a, a I, it sounds like it minimizes you this word, but it's a trophy. It's, it's to say, look, this has been accomplished. Isn't this wonderful? And if so, we won't experience the second death. We're all going to experience the first death unless we're living when Jesus comes again. But then we don't have to experience the second death and that is spiritual death. With that in mind, let's go now to the church of Pergamos in the 12th 
verse in Revelation, the second chapter and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, and we don't or we're not taking the time in this series to study all the details. So let me just quickly mention a few things to you. This church, this uh, city was a highly educated city. There was a library there of 200,000 scrolls. Now listen, scrolls were very expensive. And in and, and that day and time to have so many at one place would have really been amazing. And so there's a lot of good happening. You see there in verse 13, there were those that would deny, deny the faith and Antipas was an example of that. He was a martyr. He was willing to give his life. But then there were those that just were not remaining true to the doctrine of the Lord. So in 14, he mentions the doctrine of Balaam that was taking root there. And that idolatrous worship was linked also to sexual immorality as idolatrous worship was from time to time. And then there's Nicolaitans that also was a false doctrine that was being espoused. And so the urge in verse 16 was for them to repent. And 17, who has an ear to hear this? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that's that idea of victory. Who, who's going to be victorious? This is what he'll give you. I'll give you some of the hidden manna. Now that's especially what we're going to develop. But he goes ahead and, and he mentions also, I'll give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. I'd like for us to spend just a moment and think, what is, what is so great about this heavenly home and the hidden manna that's there? Now, I'm not suggesting to you that it's the same, but when I studied this, I couldn't help but think about the bread that I grew up around. We had homemade bread almost every meal. Every breakfast started out with homemade biscuits. Uh, from the time I can remember, the time I left home, and even when I go back home, every breakfast. As a matter of fact, when I was a little boy, you know, elementary, middle school, and, and I would go into town and spend the night with some of the guys in town, mom would then come and pick me up and she'd say, would you have fun? Yeah. She'd say, well, what'd you do? And I'd say, mom, you won't believe it. This morning we had canned biscuits. There was only a few times in my life until I left home that I ever had canned biscuits. I actually thought it was a treat. I was like, wow, I grew to realize that wasn't the treat. But then every, every supper, we always had usually a couple of breads. We might have some kind of homemade biscuit again or some kind of yeast roll or cornbread or sourdough bread was also on the table in almost every meal in addition to the other breads. Growing up without air condition, I've gotten off the school bus many times and right when I round the front of the school bus and into my yard, I could smell the bread cooking. My friends on the bus could smell the bread cooking. They all want to get off the bus. <laughs> when I think of home, even to this day, I think of bread. You know, bread has, has been that source of food that has sustained a lot of civilizations of people. And a lot of you, you think about maybe a special bread that, that you enjoyed, or maybe it wasn't something special, it was just the common bread at your meal that when you think of home, you think of that. Manna, according to Psalm 78, was angel's food. We also learn over in Exodus that it was like a wafer with a bit of honey. It was some kind of sweet, cornmeal type of food. But let me ask you a real important question for understanding of this. Why did he call it hidden manna? 
when they would go out each day, it was right there. It wasn't like they had to go hunt under things to find it or, you know, children of Israel didn't go out each day and say, well, where's it hidden today? So why is it called and hidden? We suppose that the reason it's called hidden manna is because no one was able to see where it came from. Imagine going out and getting bread every day and, and someone says to you, hey, what farm around here do they grow that crop that produces that bread? We've never seen that farm. Who harvests that crop? Oh, we've never seen anybody harvest that crop. Who grinds the meal? We, we've never seen anybody grind the meal. Who needs the dough? We've never seen anybody need the dough. Who bakes it? We've never seen anybody bake it. Hey, this bread shows up every day. Where does it come from? God. We've never seen it before. The generation before us have never seen it before. God said he would provide it. And God provides it day after day. We can't heavily develop this, but I want to scan it just enough that you, you get either a reminder of this or an understanding of this. And if you want to study it more, it's a powerful study. Drop back with me to Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter. Moses was giving the children of Israel this, this second reminder that he's going to die and they're about to go over into the land of promise and he wanted to strengthen their faith and get them ready for that journey. And he talks about why God allowed them to be out in that wilderness for 40 years. And if you'll notice in Deuteronomy the 8th chapter and verse 2, he says, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. And then what did he do after he allowed them to hunger? And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What sustained the life of the children of Israel? It's so easy for us to live with a physical eyesight and mindset that we forget the higher faith and spirituality. And it would be easy to look and say, you know what? It is that manna that has kept them alive. And God would say, uh-uh, <laughs> that's hidden manna. Don't forget where that manna came from. It's not the manna that kept them alive. It's God that kept them alive. As a matter of fact, that's a part of the strong message. Make your way now to Matthew, the fourth chapter. Remember when Jesus had been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he was so hungry and now he's going through a great trial of temptation by Satan. And you remember when the tempter came and I'm picking up in the fourth chapter in verse three after it talks about the 40 days and 40 nights of, of hunger and fasting. I'm in Matthew, the fourth chapter. I want to pick up in verse three. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, see he's, he's challenging there with the word if, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, that would be very tempting, wasn't it? But he answered and said, it 
is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What was Jesus saying there? He was going back and borrowing not only the words, but the context that goes back to Deuteronomy where he's saying, listen, you want me to change that stone into bread just to appease you, Satan, because you're trying to tempt me through my fleshly hunger that's going on right now inside of me as if to say, you know what? You're really hungry and what would sustain you right now is just a piece of bread. And he says, I want to tell you, Satan, what sustains me. It's not the next physical meal that sustains me. It's the word of God. In other words, it's God. What sustains you? It's not your paycheck that sustains you. And it's not breakfast, lunch, or supper that sustains you. It is the one who gives you those things that sustains you. It's not that, that you, by, by your own measure, has given yourself some kind of measure of physical health and, and you are sustaining yourself. It's God. What's going to be in heaven? In heaven is going to be that hidden manna. The God who sustained us all through our life here until we pass through death or until he comes again and we step over on the other side, that God is still providing. His provisions are still there. And what a glorious place heaven is going to be because everything that we need, he is still providing it. What a blessing. Let's look at another church. Let's look at the fourth church in Revelation, the second chapter. And we just looked at verse the 12th verse in Pergamos, and we're going to drop down to the 18th verse. And let's mention some things about Thyatira. As we see this church, we see in verse 19 that they have some really strong points, things they, he knows their works, their love, their service, their faith, and their patience. That's a list very similar to the list that was given to the church of Ephesus, except the church of Ephesus didn't have the love in their list. Remember, they had left or lost their first love. And, and so you look at that list and say, wow, things are good because at the end of 19, about their works, the last are even more than the first. And you say, that sounds really good. Well, that is good, except for there is a very evil power that is among them. And 20, that's mentioned through the woman of Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So again, we see the linking together of idolatry to sexual immorality. And we see that it has made its way into the church which is a very, very sad reality. And notice he gives her the opportunity to repent. And there's several things that he says there in 21, 22, 23. I want you to notice even down 24, but let's pick up in 25. But hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, there were some there that were hanging on, 
There were others that were mixed up in that sexual immorality and the plea was they all need to repent uh, that, that are mixed up in that and they need to get their life right. They need to hold fast. Don't give up. Don't give in to Jezebel and to her sexual immoral ways. And in verse 26, he who overcomes, he who is victorious and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then he gives a quote out of Psalms that's a messianic. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. In other words, it's the idea that right now, Jezebel has a strong, her, that, that doctrine of sexual immorality has a strong, powerful influence over the church there that, that just should not exist. And he's saying, overcome that. Come back to the side of God. And you know what's going to be waiting for you? What's going to be waiting for you is a place where the power will rule over the nations. In other words, there will be a power and control that will not be perverted. It will not be bad. Let's come back to that in just a moment. When I think of home that I grew up in, I think about going to public school. Well, not everything said every day was good. I think about riding a school bus. Not everything was righteous that was said and done on that bus. I think about any place I ever worked in the summer. Not everything was righteous that took place around me. You're aware of the fact we can't control the world. We can't make the world a heaven on earth. But you know what's awesome about home? We get to choose what home's going to be like. Now, I know that there may be someone here that, that there may be unrighteousness in your home. And, and I know that that's an exception to what I'm saying. And I know it's a sad exception. So... Bear with me here with this analogy. Think about homes where mom and dad both are faithful Christians. And they say, you know what? The world is wicked. But you know what? Here in this house, that language out there is not going to be spoken in here. That immoral behavior out there is not going to be happening in here. That stuff out there is not going to come on in our television. We get to control what comes into our house. I want to encourage you heads of homes. You haven't forgotten that, have you? You get to control what comes in your house. And we need to quit playing the sad song of the world is so horrible and I don't know what we're going to do. Your world doesn't have to be so horrible unless you invite it in. Where's your stand going to be? What are you inviting into your home? Isn't it wonderful when at least home is a safe place? Home is a righteous place. Home is a place that's filled with the love of God. And we go out and we live out in the world, but we look forward to coming home. Do you realize that, that is a, that's a feeble illustration 
of a sense what he was offering to the church of Thyatira. And any of you that, that, that are struggling, you're struggling to overcome a, a certain temptation, a certain sin, I want to encourage you first to continue to battle on and overcome. But the second thing that I want to encourage you to remember, that if God were going to offer a, a reward, if he was going to offer that array of hope to say, look, this is reason to overcome, what do you think he would say? One of the things he would say to the church of Thyatira is, you hang in there and one of these days you can go home to a place where there will be no sinful abomination. Imagine waking up over into heaven and there be no lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or pride of life. Imagine being at a place where Satan, the old accuser, can never say anything evil about us again. Imagine being in the place where the spiritual warfare of us battling to stay faithful to God is over. The victory's won. The last battle has been fought. And we are home. I hope that rings positive to you. Because if it doesn't, it may mean that you're not really engaged in a battle here and you're just comfortable with the world. But if you really are seeking to live a sanctified life where you live apart from the world and every day you battle, how awesome is it going to be to be at a place where the only power that rules is righteous. Do you remember that last verse in Revelation, the 21st chapter? He makes reference of this, and, and it, I, I know you probably know this, but it's just saying it again here. Revelation 21 and 27, but there shall by no means, in other words, there's just no way this is gonna happen. Revelation 21 and 27, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that a great place to be? Nothing will enter in that will defile us. What a blessing. That's the place I wanna go. That's home. That's the eternal home. That's what we should long for. Quickly, let's look at one more church and the lesson's yours. I'm back at Revelation. I'm in the third chapter now and we're looking at the church of Sardis. And notice the church of Sardis is a church that, that they are uh, in, in, uh, toward the end of one, he knows their works. He knows the name. Now this is important to understand this church, the name that you are alive, but you are dead. Let that sink in. Oh, you got a reputation that you're a very lively church, but I know the truth about you. You're not alive at all. You're spiritually dead. That's a sobering thought. And so what he makes the plea in verse four, 
You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Pause. In other words, everybody thinks you're really a spiritually lively, healthy congregation. The Lord says, I know you, Sardis, you're not healthy at all. You're pretty much spiritual dead. But then he makes an exception. He says, I know that there are a few of you that have not given up completely on the name of the Lord. And so now he gives them the urgency to overcome. Verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So if we overcome, we get these white garments, this cleansing, and that's beautiful, but, but what's not gonna happen if we overcome? Our name's not gonna be taken out of the book of life. When you think of home, what books do you think about? There's just certain books when I think of home, I think about daily devotionals with God. Did any of you read that? Did your parents read that to you were little? Anybody? Every morning, waiting on the school bus, every morning, mom would sit in the chair and she wanted to start our minds out in the will of God before she sent us out to school. And, and we would have, the, that was the title of the book, Daily Devotionals with God. I think about the various Bibles that laid throughout the house where if you were in the living room, there was a Bible to read. Each room seemed to have a Bible you could just reach over. And it's different translations that my, my parents studied out of. I think about the phone book. You kids don't even know how important that used to be. But everybody kept the phone book. And if you didn't put the phone book back, you'd hear about it soon because somebody needed to call somebody. You had to have the phone book. And I think about checkbooks. I think about the progressive farmer and the gospel advocate, magazines that used to come in the mail. What books do you think about when you think of home? What books come to your mind? He writes to these individuals and he says, look, you've got so much to overcome. You've convinced yourself and others that you're spiritually alive and you're not. And here's the problem. There's coming a day where you're going to stand on the day of judgment and what you're going to want is you're going to want your name in the book of life. And the problem is if you keep living the way you're living, your name is going to be blotted out of the book of life. And that's the greatest loss that any of us could ever experience. I want to close by taking you to Luke the 10th chapter as we think about this book of life. You remember when Jesus was training individuals how to go out and share the gospel? He sent out the 12, but then later he sent out the 70. And when they, he gave them power. And when they came back, they were really excited. Perhaps many of us in this room have been on short-term mission trips. And you know what it's like to come back like really excited. You know, you just, you can't help but tell somebody, we had a great mission trip. You wouldn't believe the good that was done. This was kind of the deal here. And so they came back and they were fired up. And in verse 17 of Luke, the 10th chapter, when the 70 returned, they just kind of like cried out to Jesus saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Brethren, that's a statement. I came back and said, 
Any demons, we could cast them out. Healing, Jesus, we could just do it. Spirits and demons and sickness, they listen to us. Jesus, do you realize the power you gave us? And he says, listen, I don't want you to get all fired up about the things you can do and miss the reason I gave you the power for all these things. I gave you that power so your name can be in the Lamb's book of life and the people you're reaching out to, their name can be in the Lamb's book of life. There's several that put a lot of work in this and we're thankful for it. But that's not really something to get excited about, is it? Unless it can help increase the number of names in the Lamb's book of life. Friends Day next week could be awesome. We could say, wow, look at all the friends that are here. Everybody brought friends. That's amazing. But the real question is, ultimately, does it increase the number of names in the Lamb's book of life? I don't know what your talents are. Oh, I mean, I know what some of your talents are. I don't know what all your resources are. I don't know all your accomplishments you've had in the last few months. But I want you to think as we're about to sing in just a moment. It doesn't matter about all those things unless you're channeling those things toward the Lord and your name being in that book, the Lamb's Book of Life. So this week, when you think about inviting friends, ultimately think about your friends standing in judgment. And what could you and I do to encourage them to have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life? You're about to go over some of you and enjoy a meal that honor to whom honor is due. In that sense, you deserve it. Honor to you. Your ministry does a lot of good, but ultimately that ministry is to encourage people towards the Lord. Everything we do is ultimately to encourage people towards the Lord. And I really don't know if it makes sense when we say this, but we're about to sing a song of encouragement and us singing this song is ultimately to encourage every one of us to have our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not there, why would you leave here tonight without surrendering to the Lord? Why wouldn't you lay it all down before the Lord and be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins and have your name added to the Lamb's book of life? Maybe you've allowed abomination to come in your life and the Lord has blotted your name out of the Lamb's book of life. Picture that. Your name blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Why wouldn't you surrender to the Lord again? Why wouldn't you come back and have your name written again in the Lamb's book of life? Listen, I don't know if you'd go get on that bus right now. But there's coming a day every one of us will breathe our last breath or the Lord will come again. And we're going to only one of two destinations. And I hope and I pray that you and I are wise and our love for the Lord is sincere. If we can help in any way, come as we stand.